Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be with you this morning and to be able to, uh, to bring what I think God's been speaking to me about in the last week, and I hope it speaks to you too. Um, just before I get into it, just a quick notice on some things that's coming up in the forthcoming weeks. We've got a new YouTube series that we're going to be launching uh, every week, kind of just to bless you for five weeks. And it's going to be a series on revival. So it's John Wilth who's going to be taking us through. It's going to be a great series. Really encourage you just to watch those. We're going to have a great fun listening to those. And, and what spurred that really is a number of things. Firstly, when we held a few prayer meetings uh, a few weeks ago, I, I really felt stirred to start praying for revival. Ben and I have been chatting away and we're like, you know what, we should just pray. We should just start into this. It's, it might be a long journey, it might be a short journey, but we just want to pray into that. And then when we held our first prayer meeting, we found out actually that it is pretty much 100 years to the day, I think it's next Sunday actually when it starts, the lowest off revival, which was the last UK mainland revival that happened, uh, is, is kind of marking 100 years since that happened. So we're like, oh, okay, there's some timing stuff here. So we really want to press into that in prayer. Now, if you don't know what revival is, basically it's when God starts to do something just sovereignly and and brilliantly amongst people. So you tend to be a lot, see a lot of salvation. So in the lowest Stoft revival, they saw something like 500 people saved in four weeks, 500 people coming to know Jesus. The churches were so full there that those people who were regular church givers were asked to go home so that people who were new could come in. There, were, there was just extraordinary scenes. And also the church, the people who do know Jesus, just get a filling of the Holy Spirit. There's like a transformation that happens there. So that's what we're praying for. That's what the series is going to focus on. It will bless you. It will encourage you. It will do you good. Get hold of that. More news on that next week. Now, today, as you saw from the title, we are carrying on with our series on the name above all names, exploring some of the names of God in the beautiful uh, Old Testament, the kind of Jehovah names, the Lord of names. And today we are focusing in on the Lord of hosts. Now, have you ever been asked, or maybe you have asked, the question, you and whose army? You and whose army? Now, I don't know if you've been asked that question, you've asked it, but what that question really is looking to do is either undermine or encourage. So if you're saying you and whose army to someone, what you're doing there is you're encouraging your own heart because you're thinking, well, they haven't got anybody else with them, it's just them, I reckon I can take them. If you're being asked that question, the person's trying to undermine you. Is trying to say, look, what, what have you got? What can you bring? You know, that kind of phraseology, that kind of sense. And the whole thing of armies is really interesting because, you know, in the UK, we're, we're kind of not really exposed to armies a lot, really. And if you want to know how big our army is, it's about 140,000 soldiers, okay? 140,000, there or thereabouts, soldiers. Now, compare that with China, who have 2.1 million you will realize that we are slightly outnumbered if it comes down to a fist fight. Uh, the USA have got 1.4 million. India have got 1.4 million. So we're going to be friends with them. And that's how international kind of politics works. But it's this whole deal of how armies work. It's like who typically has the biggest army tends to win. I know there are some exceptions, but, you know, typically that's what happens. And if you look at any kind of movie blockbuster, whether it's Avengers or whether it's Lord of the Rings or whether it's some of the older films or whatever it is, you tend to have these huge battles of massive armies clashing together. Now, we live in a time where 
we are very safe in the UK. I know with COVID you go, it doesn't feel that safe, but actually even taking that into consideration, we live in one of the safest nations on earth. But when you're in places of war, you've realized that armies are very, very important. And when we start looking at the Bible, we see that armies are very, very, very important. And as I've said, typically, I know there are some exceptions, but typically the biggest army wins. That's how it works. Now, when we look at this particular name, the Lord of Hosts, we get to see something in that which is very, very encouraging because the Lord of Hosts means the Lord of all the heavenly hosts, i.e. the Lord of the army of heaven. The Lord of the army of heaven. Now, start to be encouraged by that. And when you start to read the kind of historical books uh, in the Bible, so this is in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, and also a lot of the prophets, you will see the Lord of Hosts' name is used a lot. It surprised me, actually, when I was really starting to look at it. I was like, oh, uh, okay. This is used almost exclusively in kind of the historical books, kind of saying, look, here, there is something. Now, Mark said something, Mark Rob preached last week, and he said something very good where he said, when we look at the character of God, the nature of God, it's really important that we remember all of his names, all of his kinds of aspects. And yes, that is true. But what you see throughout history and in the Bible is that God will often lift one of his names up or one of his characteristics up so that his people get hold of that concept in that season. It's not that they don't forget the others, but the, that one is lifted up for a season. And what you see in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel and the other books I've mentioned is you see Lord of hosts lifted up so that the people of God get hold of that idea. There is something in it that we need to recapture too because I don't think I can remember the last time I came to God and said, you are the Lord of hosts. Answer my prayers. I, I, I can't remember the last time I did that. You might do that all the time, you guys, you know, uh, but I, I personally haven't done that much. So there is something here that we need to get our heads around. Now, it's actually used, as I said, a lot, and it's actually used in one of the most famous stories in the Bible, which we're going to look at this morning, and that is the story of David and Goliath, a good old family favorite. So if you've got your Bibles, 1 Samuel 17 is where you will find that. And for those of you who do not know the story, what has happened is that the Israelite army has come up against the Philistine army. And the Philistine army is on one side of the plain and the Israelite army is on the other side of the plain. And the Philistine army have this champion called Goliath. And he is huge. He's like big. He's a mighty warrior. He's someone who eats 56 steak and eggs for breakfast. He's a big chap, okay? And so he's there in the plane, and he says that if anyone defeats him, then the Philistine army will serve the nation of Israel. But if he defeats one person in one-on-one -on -one combat, then the Israelite people will serve the Philistines. There is a lot at stake at this point, and uh, the, there's no one in the Israelite army who's willing to fight. They're, they've looked at Goliath and gone, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. He's too big for me. You know, I'm, I can't cope with that. I can't do that. So nobody's volunteered so far. Until that is, a young man, a young lad really, by the name of David comes forward. And he goes out into the middle of the battlefield. And this is what happens. We'll pick it up at verse 41. 
And the Philistine moved forward, that's Goliath, and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. As I say, a nice family favorite, that one, for all the lovely, uh, lovely stories in there. I sometimes think that we've got the age rating guide wrong on the Bible sometimes, but there we go, never mind. So, what's going on here? Okay, first of all, we need to talk about Lord of Hosts, the whole deal of the spiritual realm that we are not aware of. Folks, angels and demons are real, okay? They are very, very real. They are created beings just like us, and they are limited in time and space. That means they can only be in one place at one time. They can move quite quickly, but they can only be in one place at what time, one time. They're not like God, who's everywhere, one place at one time. Now, angels enact the will of God. They enact the will of God. They are agents of bringing into about the will of God. Demons, on the other hand are fallen angels. They are angels who used to worship God, but decided to follow Satan when he made a power bid and wanted to be the one who was worshipped. At that point, he was kicked out of heaven with a third of all the angels, and so you've got two-thirds of the angels enacting the will of God, one-third with Satan, and, and that whole deal going on there. And there is a battle that goes on all the time. There is a war, if you like, going on us all the time. There is a spiritual realm that we cannot see, but that has a massive influence on how we live our lives. There are things going on all around us we can't see, but they affect us in all sorts of ways. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. So there is this deal going on here where we fight as Christians, not against rulers, not against the president or the prime minister or whoever other function or faction we want to dictate is become the devil, but actually we fight against the rulers, the principalities and powers, the demonic and Satan. That is our fight. John Stott said this, he said, the Christian spiritual warfare is specifically stated to be not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, which has until recent days been universally understood as meaning not with human, but with demonic forces. Folks, we live in a world which is dominated by rational thought. And if you can't see it, it ain't real, is how that one goes. But we know that there is this spiritual truth going on where for centuries Christians have grasped that they are wrestling with demonic forces, that they are fighting a fight, that Christianity is not smiles and niceness, but a fight, a war. Christopher Lawton says, the invisible kingdom which lies within us and around us is more powerful than the visible world that is perceived with our natural eyes. We are either 
benefited or befuddled by the invisible world depending on how we relate to it. Let me give you some examples of this. In 2 Kings 6, Elisha is with the Israelite army and he is surrounded by uh, the Syrian army. So he's in a town, he's in a city, and they're besieged by the Syrian army, completely surrounded, cut off from any escape. Elijah is on the battlements, and his servant comes up to him, and his servant says, we're stuffed, we're doomed, we're going to die. And Elisha does something brilliant. He prays for his servant, and his prayer is this, open his eyes that he may see the spiritual truth around him, or words to that effect. At that point, the servant looks up, and surrounding the Syrian army, he sees thousands, a multitude, a multitude of chariots and horses. And it describes these as chariots and horses of fire. Wow. His eyes have been opened to the spiritual truth. The army of heaven, the heavenly host, had surrounded the army that meant God's people harm. Now you might say, Mark, that's all very well, but that was in the Bible. Let me give you a story from when I used to work for an aid agency called Tear Fund. So this, this agency worked all over the world, and uh, it also worked into um, war zones, so it would deliver relief and aid into war zones. And one of these teams was in this place, and they were taking food and supplies to uh, kind of some, some food stations and to, to, to help people. And as they were driving along, they were ambushed by some bandits carrying knives and guns, stopped, ordered out of their vehicles to be on the side of the road. You know, they were going to take all their possessions, they were going to take the trucks, they were just going to leave the team in the middle of nowhere with nothing. And as they're standing there, all of a sudden, the bandits just run away. They just leg it. They're like, they scarper. And the team is left there going, okay, bit weird, okay. And they get in their trucks and they carry on with their mission and, and what they're doing. Now, later on, they just happen to be at a feeding station and they recognize one of the bandits who had kind of held them up. And they go up to him and they go, well, what happened? What's going on? And the bandit says, well, we, we ran away because of your army. And they were like, what do you mean army? He said, you, you, had, you had a load of people with you. You had loads of armed soldiers with you. And like, no, we, we really didn't. He's like, no, no, that's why we ran away. The heavenly host had turned up. The angel army, or some of it, had racked up and was there protecting those people. The spiritual reality and the physical reality are very, very different. Let me give you another example. So we all know the nativity, right? We know the nativity play. It's that wonderful time of year where kids get to put tea towels on their head and put their dressing gowns on and that people dress up as donkeys and octopuses if you've watched, watched certain films. And there's, there's kind of this lovely scene, this sentimental kind of picture of the nativity that we have created and got and represent every single year. Now, that's, a, that's kind of a, a lovely sentimental representation of the physical birth of Jesus. But this is how Revelation 12 describes it. Are you ready? She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. 
And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, I, I personally think that's far more entertaining as a nativity school play than, um, than the one with tea towels on the head. I think I might, even, I might even pay to go and see that one. I think school productions would have far more fun doing that version. You know, there is, there is something there. But what that represents is that there is a physical truth that was always going on, that the traditional thing that we see, and then there is a spiritual truth of something that's going on that we don't see but is nevertheless highly true and very influential in how our lives are led. When we see later on in Luke 2, the beautiful scene of the angels singing to the shepherds on the hill, we kind of get that nice view of lots of little kids dressed in white singing. But those were powerful, mighty beings singing a victory song of Jesus' birth and the fact that the devil had not managed to devour the child. There is something going on there. Now, with angels, we need to remember that angels are not little children dressed in white robes with wings stuck on the back of their head and a little glowing halo. That's not an angel. An angel is an incredibly powerful being who can wipe out tens of thousands of men in one go. There's a story in Isaiah 37 of a single angel killing 185,000 soldiers in one day. Very different from small child with wings glued on back. That's an angel. And that's only kind of like the foot soldiers, if you like. The Bible talks about all sorts of angels. It talks about um, mighty angels who refuse praise from men, but only give it to God talks about archangels who don't even speak with their own authority but can come and smite mighty things. So archangels kind of above angels in some way. talks about cherubim who aren't cute little chubby children with wings. They're, they're these powerful creatures who sort of support the throne of God. talk about seraphim in Isaiah 6 who shout and the whole temple shakes but whose primary job in heaven is to sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. All of this heavenly host, which is a multitude, we don't know the exact numbers, but it's a multitude. When the Bible talks about big numbers, it tends to use the word multitude or thousands and thousands. It's, it's massive. But every single one of those angels bows down to God. How powerful is he to be the Lord of hosts? He is so powerful and awesome and commands an incredible army. Now, I've said we are in a battle. I've said we're in a fight. And we really, really are. Dave Devonish says this. He says, the reality is that the advance of the gospel and the building of the church involve us in attacking and experiencing counterattack in relation to real cosmic forces of darkness under the control of Satan, who is described as the god of this world. Now, in this fight, what I want to do is just give you three principles for how to fight this fight. Three principles to remember. The first principle is this, lies will come. In verses 43 to 44, we see Goliath using lies to try and influence David. Now, the enemy's strategy has not changed on this. He used lies in the Garden of Eden, and he uses lies now. It is one of his biggest weapons 
And he will come and he will whisper things in your ear and he will tell you things from other people that just are not true. If we look at this particular point with Goliath, he uses three very specific things. He says, one, you are useless. He disdains his appearance. He wants David to feel insignificant that he can't do possibly anything. And so this lie is whispered. You are useless. Now, (laughs) from a certain point of view, the enemy is telling the truth here because he hates you. When he looks at you, he sees something that he has not got, this beautiful relationship with God. And so he hates you. He does actually disdain you. So he's actually speaking from a real place of of probably truth, actually. But it's still a lie to you. It's still a lie. You're beautiful in God's eyes. You are the most effective person on this planet to do what you are called to do. Because that's what God has done with you. The next lie that Goliath throws out there is that your weapons are useless. Verse 43, do you come at me with sticks? The enemy will whisper this lie to you. He say, your weapons are useless. Prayer does not work. The Bible is not true. You should not persevere but give in. <laughs> He's telling a pack of lies. Why do you think those things get whispered? Because he's scared. Prayer does work. The word is true and breaks power. You have authority and when you persevere, you will succeed. That is the truth of the Bible. Then we get onto this last one, verse 44. You will lose. I will give your flesh to the birds of the air. You're going to lose. There's no point fighting. You're going to lose. It's a lie. We've won. (laughs) We've won. We're going to heaven for all eternity. We're on the winning side. These are lies. And the best way to deal with those is to laugh at them. So principle one, laugh at the lies. Principle number two, the Lord of hosts is with us. When David is standing there, he's saying, whatever weapons you come at me with, the Lord of hosts is with me. Why throughout the history books do we see that phrase used again and again by the the, the kings, by David and others? It's because they want to say, hey, the Lord of hosts is with me. As I advance the kingdom, as I take the kingdom forward, the Lord of hosts, he is with me. And that means I am not going to fear. I'm not going to be scared because I've got an angel army behind me. The Lord of hosts is with me. Now, that doesn't mean that we're in a fight and things can instantly happen like that. There are times when we're going to have to hold out. There's a story in Daniel 10 where uh, an angel is actually delayed because of the fight that it's having and actually needs reinforcements from an archangel in order to get to Daniel so we know there are times when we're going to have to dig in and just hold the ground until reinforcements come but reinforcements will come because the Lord of hosts is on our side so that's principle two the Lord of hosts is with you principle three I've already hinted at this a bit but principle three is this Verse 46, we have won. David refers to the Lord of hosts to give him this confidence. And as he's looking at the battlefield, he knows he's already defeated Goliath. He knows it's in the bag. He knows the battle is won. 
on the cross, Jesus defeated the devil. The war has been won. Battles are still fought, but the war has been won. The authority of the enemy has been stripped. Just like David threw down Goliath and then chopped off his head, the champion of the enemy has been defeated and his authority has been cut off. And now the angel armies, those children of God, us, have authority over the enemy. There has been a dynamic shift here. We have won. Still a fight. Still need to keep going. But we have won. We are on the winning side. As Romans 8.37 puts it, we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors. Now, what does this mean for us? It means that we are conscripted for battle. You see, the Lord of hosts also has another meaning. As well as being the Lord of angel armies, the Lord of hosts is also used to describe the people of God. So when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you become part of that army. You become part of the heavenly army, the seen part, if you like. And so we are a people who are fighting with that. In Joshua 5, Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's army and he asks that question, whose side are you on? And the commander of the angel armies, the commander of the, the Lord of hosts, he says, well, I'm on neither your side, their side. You need to be on my side. Come and worship me. When we are called into the army of God, we are called to come and fight alongside him. Now, folks, I've got to be honest here. I think most Christians don't realize this. They think we can just sort of come into this army and then sit there. Or that fighting will happen regardless. It, it, it doesn't. You need to dig in. You need to fight to take the kingdom of God forward. It's not easy. Persecution happens to Christians because they are taking this fight forward. One of the greatest weapons we have is a weapon that we have sadly lost so much ground on, and that's prayer. In Ephesians 6, it talks about the whole armor of God, and then it, it says at the end of that, hey, pray, pray, pray. Now, I've got to be honest with you, I, I struggle in prayer. I, I find it difficult. I find it tiring. I find that sometimes I don't know the words to say, and I, I, I kind of sit there going, well, what good is this? But then I had a breakthrough, and the breakthrough was this. Prayer is meant to be hard because it's a weapon. You're in a fight. So when we pray, we are bringing our, our weapons to fight alongside the angel armies. When we pray, we are engaging with spiritual battle. And so it's tiring. It's hard. And lies start to creep in. There's no point doing it. Don't need you. Now I want to speak very honestly to Hope Church here and, and just say, look, guys, we ran a series of prayer meetings. We ran one in the morning, one in the midday, and one in the evening. We had no more than 12 or 15 people at each of those. We're a church of 200 to 300 adults. Hmm. 
that's not good enough. We're in a fight. And we're relying upon about a dozen people to do it. You might say, yeah, but I'm praying at home. I don't need to rack up at corporate prayer meetings. It's, oh, it's so hard. And oh, I don't particularly want to do the 6.31. And, you know, lunchtime's difficult for me because I work. And oh, the evening ones, I'm always putting the kids to bed or I have another meeting and I can't do it. Look, there is never a good time. And you are needed. When we gather together in corporate prayer, something happens. When we all lean in, we might not say anything. We might not even mention anything. We might just sit there. But when we say amen... We're putting our weight behind that prayer and something shifts. Yes, we need personal prayer. Encourage you in that. But corporate prayer is part of the battle. We need to fight together. You know, we've chosen to put the prayer meeting at 6.30 in the morning, not because there's something magical about praying earlier, but because actually it's the most convenient time for everyone. You don't have to be at work. I know some people commute at that time. That's, that's no worries. But, you know, with Zoom, you can join while you're in bed. Please turn your video off. But you can join while you're in bed in your pajamas. You know, it doesn't matter. When we gather together, when we pray, we are fighting alongside angel armies. We are breaking in. As we come and pray for revival in this town and in this nation, in this country, we are hammering against a wall that needs to be broken down so that God can move in amazing ways. So that's what I'm going to ask to do, guys. We need to persevere in this. You know, perseverance is often defined as just keeping your course in the face of of obstruction it's going to be tough it's going to be hard but when we do it together we're going to see breakthrough the heavenly host always worships God that's what we do the heavenly host looks to see the kingdom advance that's what we do the heavenly host sees demons flee. That's what we do. And the heavenly host demonstrates Jesus. That's what we do. I want to pray for you. So I'm just going to ask you to stand wherever you're at. And I want to pray. Jesus. Jesus. Father, we, we come to you, first of all, to say sorry for our attitude for how we approach prayer. Personally, I want to say that, but as a, as a church, I think we've got it wrong. And I know it's not just us, Lord. It's not just a hope thing that churches all over the UK have the same issue with their prayer meetings. And so, Lord, we just say sorry for that. We turn away from our attitude to prayer. And we turn towards the fact that it is a mighty weapon in a spiritual battle that we might never see but know to be true. So, Father, you would just reveal to us the significance of prayer. You would reveal to us the significance of how that fights in a spiritual battle. Father, we're thirsty and keen to see you move in mighty ways. We stand here with the Lord of hosts and say your army would help us to break through, to see your kingdom come, to see your will be done. Jesus, we are thirsty for that. 
Father, change us from people who are, are fearful and scared. Change us from people who think that we're, we're the lies that we've listened to for years are true. Change us from that. Expose those lies in our hearts and exchange that for a boldness and a courage that sees breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough in your precious name. That we stand with the Lord of heavenly hosts to see your kingdom come and your will be done. Amen. <laughs>